0: what if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers podcast, where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, Featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vidy Gawel, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 138, I'm speaking with Tom Humphrey, a partner in the venture capital firm Blackbird. Learn about Tom Sunrise in Sydney, Australia being the youngest of four siblings, with his mother, a high school teacher, and then business executive, and dad, an architect. I love those reflections on how his older sister stayed up late at night and sometimes missed high school because she was looking after Tom, and then the journey together later in life, building Canopy for nearly a decade to now being one of the top 10 M&A exits for a tech company out of Australia, achieving a 14X return on investment. I asked Tom about the key differences between Australian and US culture, given his 10 years living, studying, and working in the U.S., his reflections on his travels to Bhutan and learning about the economics of happiness, his insecurities and how he manages them, how he's learned what good looks like in sales and go-to-market for startups, the concept of deposits in the care bank in order to be a great manager, and his balancing act on decision-making with analytics and gut feel. We also cover his transitions from consulting to startup at a time when startups weren't the buzz they are today, and his reflections on what would he change if he could have his career all over again. So it's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Before we get to today's episode, I want to share something just with you. Each week, I meet many entrepreneurs and investors and a big challenge they all face is taking care of their reporting and accounting needs. I know it's a dry topic, so I've done the research for you and I've come across Full Stack Advisory, which is now my number one recommendation for all things accounting and tax. And they're rated as Australia's top accounting firm for tech founders and investors. It's simple. Open your browser and type in fullstack.com.au and get in touch. I'll even give you 10 seconds now before this episode to open your browser and type in fullstack.com.au. Let me know how you go. And it's now time for today's conversation. Please enjoy. Tom Humphrey, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you on. The level of feedback that I've got from your friends, colleagues, your wife is incredible. Everyone's a super fan. So I'm hoping we can take out, bring out some of your abilities and experiences in this episode. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now?
1: Uh, so I was born in Sydney. Um, I went to UNSW, uh, and then, uh, went overseas for 10 years from 2011 to 2021. Uh, I was in the U S uh, San Francisco, Boston, and Denver. Uh, and then I'm um, back in Sydney now, uh, about 10 minutes from the house I grew up in, which my my dad's still based in. So.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. And we will talk about those experiences. And from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now?
1: So <clears throat> my first job was a little bit embarrassing uh, because I got fired after my first shift. It was at Blockbuster <laughs> Video. I must have been, I think I was about 13 at the time, so quite young. Not even sure if that was legal, but uh I did my first shift in the video store, just obviously kind of renting out uh, VHS and, and uh, videos. And um, I didn't actually realise, but they had a schedule on a whiteboard, which would tell you when your next uh, kind of uh, uh, job was on, on on the schedule. And I didn't realise that there was a whiteboard, so I missed my next um, uh, time to be there. And so at that point, I was fired. So actually, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later on, but uh, long story short, you know, Blockbuster story was obviously kind of killed by video streaming and Netflix. And uh, a couple of maybe 10, 12 years later, um, I worked on a video streaming startup with my sister. So you could argue that maybe I had the last laugh there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, we will definitely chat about that. And Tom, as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer that you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve?
1: Yes. Um, actually, just along that note, uh, my sister who founded Canopy, uh, which was the company I was just referencing, uh, you told me up front that I wasn't allowed to use my wife because she's been on the <laughs> show. So uh, I used my sister and actually my sister's kind of got a pretty low profile, um, as does Canopy. Um, but, you know, just in the context of someone who built a company uh, as a woman going through a lot of struggles, uh, she built the company initially out of Perth and then moved with her family. Over to San Francisco, Um, she had a three-month-old baby boy at the time. Her husband sort of quit his job and joined the business as well and bootstrapped the company for four years in San Francisco, which was before our first funding round, which was was very difficult, um, particularly with the talent war in San Francisco at the time. And then just to be really blunt, um, you know, it's one of the top 10 M&A exits for a tech company out of Australia, but it's a company you've probably never heard of. Um, And so it was just a really awesome journey. A great success story um the investors that we brought on board we achieved a 14x uh, return for them on their investment and so uh, it was a really great great ride um but yeah like i said it's one which you probably haven't heard of
0: that's incredible and maybe we'll cover that as part of your sunrise what that dynamic was like growing up as siblings because i have been told you've got some really high ambition high energy siblings so that would have been interesting and and for listeners wondering lauren your wife has been on the show she was on in the early days in episode 68 <laughs> so I'd encourage any of our listeners who want to learn about Lauren and her business Pintable to listen to that. And she's got an equally impressive story. So 2 high profile Humphreys in the podcast ranks. You
1: definitely put them in the right order though, because uh, <laughs> it's quite more interesting.
0: Yeah. I said to her, I said, I, I need to get better to get to Tom. So you're now episode, I think one forty. So I've got right. 60, 70 more episodes since then. So I've gotten better. I I've got better questions to ask you that I asked Lauren. So we'll see. <laughs> let's, let's one back to clock Tom, to your sunrise and talk about your childhood. You mentioned growing up in Sydney. What are your memories of the environment and the influence of family?
1: Yeah, so I grew up um, in Sydney, as I mentioned, I was the youngest of four children, um, which basically meant I had five parents uh, growing up. Uh, And just to your kind of comment about working with my sister on canopy, she was actually the eldest child in the family. So that nine years older than I am. uh, When we were growing up, she was very heavily involved in my parenting as well. And in fact, um, uh, she will always remind me of this, but she actually had to repeat one year of uh, school when she was quite young uh, and when my parents kind of actually dug into what was going on and why why was this, their daughter of theirs, who was the, what, the star student, suddenly becoming, um, having conversations about challenges at school. And it was because my sister was waking up throughout the night to take care of me. Oh, um, wow. So it, was, it was having troubles at school. Um, but yeah, I you know, grew up with a lot of jokes about being the mistake um, in the family, <laughs> just given the kind of age gaps. Um, but we had a really, really tight family. Uh, we traveled a lot, we camped a lot. My siblings had a huge influence on me. And I always talk about how, like, I kind of feel like I'm a third of each of them in terms of my own personality um, and how I've developed. Um, my parents, uh, mum was a high school teacher. Uh, dad was built his own architectural practice. They were just, both worked incredibly hard. Mum was a total go-getter. She went to uni when that was not normal for women to go to uni. And she was a brand manager at Unilever and Nestle. And that was the first woman in Australia at both of those companies. Um, And she did a lot of like entrepreneurial projects on the side as well. So, yeah, just had a really great upbringing and a really tight family.
0: And how would, I guess, maybe high school teachers describe your personality? So when I was doing research for this, the words that came up was, athletic you kind of pick up things very quickly and you're good at it were you always like that as a kid were you into sports and were you the social person
1: um yeah look i was definitely always into sports um a fun fact i i ran with the olympic torch in the 2000 uh olympics so there was a four kilometer segment yeah, wow. of, of the torch run just as it was kind of heading into the stadium and i was kind of running part of that Um, so yeah definitely was always sporty through school and through uni Um, uh, I'd also say like uh, you know I was very inquisitive um and adventurous um I you know post-university took a year off and just went traveling by myself for a year um around the world I think I visited 60 70 countries um just on that that single trip and yeah, I'd say, look, I was, I was pretty studious as well um, at school. I, I, you know, I, you know, when I, even when I was doing that trip of traveling, I was, I was doing a lot of like writing on the side um, and I wrote, a, I wrote an academic paper for a, a legal journal, just in internet cafes in different parts of um, Eastern Europe as I was kind of traveling through. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, that was kind of my personality um, kind of growing up, just yeah, sporty, studious and I loved love chasing adventure.
0: One thing that Lauren, your wife mentioned is that you're very close with your friends from high school, even now, even though you live in different parts of the world and different jobs. So was that always the case? Like you were tight. Cause that's quite hard. I find that as I'm getting older and I've got friends in different parts of Australia and the world where I actually don't have any school friends anymore. These are uni friends and friends that I've met later in life school friends have sort of distanced, but was that always the case even growing up? Like, cause you come across as someone very ambitious with work but clearly you make time for friends as well and, and hobbies.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, like I, I think um, I was just really lucky. I had a really good group of mates at school and I just think they're all amazing um, humans. They've all gone to do very different things from you know, one's you know at the ER doctor at the hospital up at Port Douglas and another's an architect. He lives sort of a couple of blocks away. So like everyone's doing different things, but we're just super connected and share the same values. I think it's also like an interesting reflection just – Having spent 10 years in the US, like I think there's a very different dynamic in terms of the way the societies operate. In Australia, you go to school and then oftentimes for the most part, eight, ninety to ninety-five percent of you know the kids from your school are in the same town, still living with mum and dad, going to either yeah. University of Sydney, UNSW, UTS, whatever it is, there's very few who actually like leave town, whereas in the US, it's completely opposite. You know, it's this kind of like flock of everyone heading off in every direction to UMICH, to Harvard to whoever whichever university. And So I feel like it was interesting to reflect on the US, you know, the strongest kind of bonds and relationships, I felt like were formed at that university level when you're in a dormitory or, you know, alpha, beta, gamma kind of sorority or whatever that might be, um, just through living on top of each other for four years. Whereas in Australia, I think, um, you know, there are the stronger bonds from school that can carry through. So I've definitely felt that, you know, with my school friends as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, the joke always is Australia, you go to a party and it's like, which school did you go to, right? Like you get judged the social hierarchies based on which school you went to and which suburb you live in. What do your parents do is I think the U S is a bit more flatter in that sense. The US,
1: You know what the U S has that too. It's just, which uni did you go to? Like I think mm. we have, which school did you go to? The U S is which uni you went to. And I'd say the one thing which I've noticed is that that changes with tech. Like, I just think like, you know, you and I, we operate in, in the tech circle and, you don't ask those questions. No one gives a shit what school you or uni you went to. It's just like, what are you building? And like, mm. what's the traction? Like, what's your roadmap? What's your vision? Like, and I think that the beautiful thing about tech is that it's one of the industries, unlike a lot of others, where we don't really care about CVs and, and schools and universities. It's, just, it's really mm. just about like, you know, the product and, and what you're building.
0: Yeah, I think the point there also about respect, I feel respect earns through performance and execution rather than a CV in the tech space like i know nikki from blackbird is a big fan of that Where he always says i don't want to speak to you if you've gone to a great school that doesn't make you important your work makes you important and how you present it so it's a great great way of looking at life and yeah
1: like he always talks about the the hungry not proven and Mm. you know if you think about some of the most successful you know company stories whether it's like the atlassian guys and mike and scott you know just coming out of university and founding atlassian or Think about Facebook and Zuckerberg dropping out of university for that. Um, he did he go to Harvard,
0: through. but yeah. Yeah,
1: he only lasted a year. And then I think, you know, even Zooks, I think that's one of the best examples I can think of, like Tim Kentley Clay down in, who uh, was down in Melbourne at the time, and just being a designer, like a, you know, so a graphic designer and just going, you know what, I'm going to build an autonomous vehicle company. I think it's just, you know, and then that company sells to Amazon for $1.3 billion. I, I, I think, you know, the idea here is that you can be anyone and do anything. Um, mm. Which is really cool, and that didn't used to be the case.
0: Mm. And that and that probably connects to your story. Like when you were eighteen, you've got some understanding of the world. You mentioned your dad's an architect and mum had business experiences. What was what was success at that age? Like what did you want to do with your life?
1: Yeah, I'd so say look, the fir- like around that age of eighteen, the first kind of pivotal thing actually probably was maybe at sixteen when I was still in school. So I wanted to do geography and German at school, and there was a clash on the calendar, so I couldn't. I had to drop one of them. I ended up dropping geography, sticking with German, and I didn't know what else to do. And so I was like, legal studies was the only option. I had this legal studies course in high school. So I took that up and I was just like, wow, this is cool. And so that was like the first pivotal moment for me, I think, was taking legal studies. I was like, I want to do law. So I go to university and I do law. Um, when I was at university, uh, I started doing like on the side, a lot of work in law firms. So it was two to three days a week working in as a paralegal, Clayton Utz, and then um, Alan Zarth Robinson at the time. Um, And I think I just kind of like realized it probably wasn't what I thought it was um, in reality. And um, so I started to kind of open up my ambit a little bit as to other opportunities. And I think like the next kind of major point of influence on me was my brother. My brother at the time was working in consulting at PwC Consulting. And he sort of like opened up my eyes to like, hey, like there's this other kind of Job out there. And so I was like, oh, that looks really, really cool. So I just kind of went after that, ended up joining uh, Booze and Company as a management consultant um, and was there for about three and a half, four years. Um, and it was really cool. And I act- actually, it's interesting, I reflect on this quite a bit, but I actually think like the legal training is incredibly valuable for business and just starting a business or being an operator. And the reason I say that is because I think the analytical framework you get from law, which is really about you study all these cases and law principles and you kind of like build this legal principles. And then you get to like, okay, here's this factual situation of, you know, just kind of killed someone. He's got a knife in his hand. Like let's apply the principles of law to kind of understand what the outcome should be in this situation. Business is very similar. It's just like you, you build like a repository of business principles and learnings. And then you kind of face this problem of like, okay, I've got this product, this market. And it's really about just applying business principles to the, so the situation to try to come out with the best outcome and solve solve that. So.
0: When when you look back on those experiences, like you would, I think you did five years in in Booz Allen's and Clayton all up. Would you do it differently now? Like, would you go straight into a startup and become an operator, or would you? Do you think? Because this is a question that comes up. I get this a lot from students, and I'm sure you do as well. Where today there's so many options where people can go directly, like, like you said before, you don't need a CV. You could just go apply for a job at one of your portfolio companies and work your way through that and get equity and move up the ranks. Do you still think law and consulting and these traditional industries are valuable today?
1: Look, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I think you got to remember I'm a little older, so I, there wasn't really an option to, 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 to do anything different back then. So mm. when I was coming out of university in 2007, um, there was no startup ecosystem. There was no Canva, there was no VC. You know, it was really only sort of like in that sort of like 2010, 2011 time frame when that startup ecosystem really started to develop. Um, so I'd say like rewinding back in time, I don't know if I had a different, um, you know, path out of there. Like, I think if your kind of question is like, well, if you were kind of graduating today, what would you do? Look, I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think there's any right or wrong. I think, you know, a lot of people stress about like, the next step in their career or the path that they've got to take and the reality is like kids coming out of university today students they're young like you know you're 22 23 and you've got so many amazing years ahead of you and i think that there's no right or wrong answer here and you've just got to kind of go on the adventure and it's as much about the journey as the destination and just you know whether you go into consulting or law or whatever and you kind of build some base skill sets there and then kind of that opens up other doors of opportunity or whether you go straight into a startup and go that route or straight to a VC, it doesn't really matter. It's just, you know, just take whichever route makes sense to you and your personality and where you think. Um, and like inevitably, like four to five years from now, you're probably going to be doing something different anyway.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause last night, Max from Blackbird and I, we judged the StartMess student fellowship pitches and there was about 60 students and they were pitching all kinds of ideas. And I, and I said to my girlfriend afterwards, like the confidence they brought and the ability to face rejection, where we had to pick three winners out of twenty pitches, was incredible. Where when I look back to when I was twenty, I don't think I would have had that ability to pitch at seven p.m. on a Wednesday night over Zoom to random investors and get told, "No, your idea is not great. Come back with a better idea and pitch, do a better pitch." So, yeah, I think to your point, that that confidence is is a different is a different boost today, and I think it creates a competition that we didn't probably didn't have when we were coming through high school and uni?
1: Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I mean, Gen Z is such a different generation. <laughs> I've learned that <laughs> so, through a lot of the investing we do. Um, we obviously get to, like, really understand people and markets. And, yeah, Gen Z is just such a different ge- generation on, on, on all regards. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, I think that, you know, even just, like, things like, you know, TikTok and Roblox and just, like, understanding just, like, usage patterns across these products is just, like, unbelievable. Unbelievably different generation to us.
0: A quick break to tell you about Fullstack Advisory, Australia's top accounting firm for tech founders and investors. Now, you might be wondering there are a number of accounting firms in the market. How should you decide if Fullstack is right for you? Well, let's find out what Grace Wong, the technical tax manager at Fullstack, has to say
2: yeah so we have had clients sign up previously after being looked after by a traditional accounting firm in those sorts of firms clients usually email one point of contact that is usually the manager and sadly the email will just be stuck in their inbox until they deal with it even if it's something another person could easily answer for example the accountant could answer how to deal with the accounting around safe notes clients like that we're a bit more accessible we've got a dedicated bookkeeper, accountant and manager for each client that is engaging for those services with us. We also have a centralized inbox which is monitored and the emails received here are delegated to the appropriate person. Now on the tax side of things, we specialize in startups and tech clients. We've looked after over 300 startups each year. So we're more likely to understand these clients better than a traditional accounting firm would. For example, an accountant in a traditional accounting firm would usually see purchases of physical equipment, property and other assets like, say, trucks, laptops, you name it. Whereas at Fullstack, we see the intangible assets too. Your patents, trademarks, registered designs, software development in many clients. And this is really important because there is different tax treatment for these items. We're also the accounting partner for startups on their equity journey. The concepts of sweat equity and safe notes are pretty common to us. Then when it comes to the time that our client is ready to sell their business, we assist them with the necessary written tax advice and the due diligence processes around this.
0: Thank you, Grace. And I recently found out that Full Stack Advisory works with 300 tech startups. Yep, that's right. So get in touch and find out how they can help you with your accounting needs. Yeah, good luck with your three kids. I mean, they're still under five, I think, but good luck with them. We're getting a lot of, of, of MVPs lot of through them. Training, so. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring the conversation back to magic moments because I think this is the part that we really understand you as a person and some of the decisions you made. And you, you talked about your early experiences. I know you, you said earlier you traveled a lot and you, you mentioned it to me and Lauren did as well about your trip to Bhutan where you explored the concept of happiness. When, when was that? Maybe stamp that. When was that in your career? Was that post law? Was that before law? Yeah,
1: that was, that was later. So that was 2013, uh, around June.
0: So you'd, um, you'd probably had what, five, seven years experience by then in the yeah, professional world.
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So maybe
0: tell us what, what led you to, I think before, before you answer the question, where were you at from a mindset perspective? Maybe give us a sense of where you were in life.
1: Yes. So I, um, had left Australia, so I was, okay, just rewind a little bit. So I spent um, four years in management consulting. If there's one thing I learned in management consulting, I did this project actually where I went to a mine site, um, Fortescue mine mine site just out in the Pilbara, and I was out there for a year, literally just in the desert, living in a shipping container. Um, And I just absolutely thrived on the experience. And that was just like, it was like this intense, like operational experience. I think like my experience up until then in consulting had been you know, kind of like more in the boardroom level, kind of strategizing. And this was more like really operational level. Um, I was working with a mine manager just on how to increase productivity out of the mine. And so I kind of came out of that going, wow, operations, I want to get into operations. So spun out of consulting, I joined this startup, outhill, which was like a really crazy journey. It was like a Groupon for Australia um, at the time when Groupon was going bananas. Google offered $6 billion to buy the company. Uh, in, instead, chose to IPO and publicly list, and I think it's now trading at about 200 million. So that was a really bad decision not to not to sell to Google. Um, so I joined this startup at the time, which was unusual. There wasn't a lot of startups. You know, I remember like I'd, I'd go around to my friends, are like, "Oh, what are you doing?" I'm like, "Audio." I was like, "This is a startup," and they're like, "What's a startup?" <laughs> um, and that was like literally the question, like, "What's a startup?" And you, I just don't get that question today. Um, and you, you know, we were in the garage in Bono Junction the really short story there was like this incredible journey where we, we went from like seven people to 85 people in about 10 months, um, built a really substantial run rate and sold the company to News Corp and Channel 10. And that all happened in like one year. It was just, this really incredible journey. And as you know, the typical startup journey is that sort of seven to 10 years. And so it was uh, kind of had to unlearn that, if you will, like that a startup journey was one year. Mm. Um, and then so I kind of went to the US. And so I was over in the US, I actually did a little bit of grad study. And so just to context the the Bhutan thing I was in the US I was doing a postgrad study I connected with this guy who became a very close friend of mine Ben Safran and Ben Safran had worked at the World Bank um for about three or four years and one of the things he'd been doing at the World Bank was just trying to build an understanding of the economics of happiness is kind of like the topic and so what I mean by that is like if you think about every country today Australia United States UK or England um every country sort of manages itself to GDP. And so the whole idea is like every company, sorry, every company, every country is orient, orientated purely towards growing the GDP output of the country. Um, and it's actually like, if you break it down, GDP is not really a great metric or that we should be shooting for because at the end of the day, it's just like, what are we all striving for in life? We want to be happier. And so GDP is an interesting metric, but it's kind of got these misalignments. So for example, um, if we go to war, GDP goes up because suddenly we start producing all these ammunitions and tanks um, cancer and you know, puts more health uh, responsibility on the health system, GDP goes up because suddenly healthcare as um, a, a percentage of GDP goes up. So it's kind of like these perverse examples where GDP goes up and when it's not actually associated to happiness. Um, so anyway, so I was chatting with Ben about this, this whole idea. Um, there was this random, uh, this is kind of like where the story gets a bit embarrassing, but there was, there was a, a beer called Dos Equis, um, which is kind of like a corona over in the US. And they announced a competition where they're like, for twenty five thousand dollars US, um, enter a three minute video of what you would do to be the most interesting man in the world, uh, which was part of like their campaign. And um, so Ben and I were like, oh, like you know, let's 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 go on a quest for happiness. So we submitted a video. We won this competition. They gave us twenty five thousand dollars, and suddenly we're on this kind of like escapade of like, okay, we've got to go on a quest for happiness. So we spent about two months in Bhutan traveling through the mountains, we met with the Prime Minister of Bhutan, we met um, with all these different people in Bhutan, and we're kind of like trying to answer this question of what's the meaning of happiness. The reason why we're going through Bhutan, just to be clear, is that to this concept of like countries um, are uh, managing themselves towards GDP, Bhutan is actually famous because they have this concept of gross national happiness, which is Mm. sort of gross domestic product, it's gross national happiness, and they actually kind of have a, a methodology which is incredibly complex around how they kind of gauge the happiness of all of the people in their population. It's about 750,000 people um, to kind of come up with this metric. And then they kind of effectively manage the country towards that metric and try to move the levers, which will move that metric forward. Um, so yeah, really fascinating um, kind of experience in Bhutan and yeah, happy to talk a lot about happiness. It's it's a, it's a topic close to my heart.
0: I never thought there'd be economics of happiness. That's, that's fascinating. And I think you've got to, you you actually submitted a paper, right? That I think is on the internet. If some people search your name, it comes up.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we um yeah we wrote a paper um uh we yeah, we wrote this paper affiliated with the um uh, HBR Review, the Harvard Business Review. Um, it's called "Bhutan: The Economics of Happiness," um, and that's that's basically that's basically uh, kind of uh, all of our learnings from that experience.
0: Well, get ready for some happiness startups coming your way. After this. <laughs> <laughs> this happiness as a service. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be cool. Um, it's actually interesting. You touched on a number of things that I sort of skipped over. So I do want to maybe go down some of those threads. The first thread you talked about is the role at our deal, And if I understand correctly, that was your first operational role because you'd done law and consulting. And like you said, it was a fast track startup where you joined and you grew it to 85 People, from what I understand, and and sold it within 12 months. What was the hardest part of that transition in 2010 to go from having a career where you almost had certainty over what was coming next to going to throwing yourself in the deep end in many ways, but also a chief operating officer as a leadership role. So you might've had direct reports or you might've had investors that you need to give updates to. What was that transition like?
1: Yeah. Yeah. 100% the hardest thing was the people (laughs) Mm. you when you're in consulting everybody else kind of looks and talks like you like other consultants so they're all kind of like each other you speak a language of excel and powerpoint um, and you your day-to-day is very much in excel and powerpoint um, and that's kind of it when you kind of jumping out of that going to audio suddenly you got to put away the excel put away the powerpoint and you got to start working in people it's like we got to Build a team. We're going to have team meetings, um, and you've got to manage people, and you've got to manage people who are, are very different. You know, you've got people who speak the language of marketing, people who speak the language of sales and customer support people, and the people who don't speak the same language necessarily as you. And so, you've got to learn to speak a lot of different languages. Um, so that was probably the hardest thing. I'd say you know, it took me definitely a couple of months of iterative kind of learning and personal development to kind of get there. Um, but yeah, by the end of it, it was. Um, I mean, it was just amazing experience um and i just remember day to day just jumping out of bed running into the office and just being so pumped about like okay we're gonna have our marketing meeting now um you know we were kind of like spending upwards of two million dollars a month on different marketing channels so these were like really fascinating kind of questions and i had like my analytics team and we would be jumping into like you know running analytics on like what the best deals were and there was this like really interesting analysis to do about what deal to run on what day at what time to what profile of users and then like what mix of deals, like you maybe a travel deal with you know other deals, and then a lot of competitive analysis. Um, and then yeah, obviously with the sales team, you know, we had a sales team of about 45-50 people. Um, and so just you know, really you know, thinking through like how to kind of build a sales team of that size, thinking through the incentive structures, and also just like how do you align the sales team to the goals as an organization if we start deciding we want to go after these types of deals. Like how do you kind of feed that into the incentive structure to mobilize 50 people to kind of orientate towards that um, sort of outcome? Uh, So yeah, it was just a really, really awesome experience. But I'd say like, yeah, the the key learning there that, you know, for me was just around like the importance of people and just being able to kind of mobilize a team and, and speak multiple languages.
0: I want to come back to people because that was something your colleague Nick Crocker mentioned that you've learned a lot about managing people. And I think in VC, the role of a manager is a very interesting role. So maybe we'll touch on that in a bit. And then I want to ask, where where were you at? Like back to like kind of decision making. So August 2011, based on your LinkedIn, is when you left our deal based on that exit. Yeah, what, what, what did you want to do? Because as you mentioned earlier, when you started your career, startups weren't quite a thing. Was now you've tasted startups, you've got this legal background, you've got consulting, so you've got a fairly rounded skill set from what I can see. So you were you would have had many options and you so where where did you start? Yeah. Like what was that decision making process to consider your next opportunity?
1: Yeah, look, I think um I was yeah, so it was really quick into that experience. And the actual acquisition process to News Corp and Channel 10 was amazing. It was just really interesting to go through that process. It was sort of like a four month process of working with their team and really understanding how our business would integrate within to in, into their organizations. It was about that when I left was about three months after the um, actual acquisition process. So I wanna say it was like June to August. Um, and I did have this kind of question of like, maybe I just stay on and, um, you know, with the business and, you know, then it's sort of like part of this bigger organization. News Corp in, in the two was definitely like the dominant force. And so working really closely with the News Corp team. Um, and then I was actually having a discussion with them about transitioning through within News Corp's in, uh, structure to the US because they had a lot of assets and digital assets over in the US as well. Um, the reason I kind of like left was really, um, well, twofold. One was, um, wanted to go to the US. And so I think, you know, I, I, I don't know, I could just like looking around at the, at the, you know, the ecosystem at that point in time, you know, we talk about last year, $10 billion or so invested into Australian startups from VC, you know, back in 20, uh, 2011, it was, it was less than $100 million, right? So it was mm. just, there wasn't a lot kind of going on and I'd kind of quickly cottoned on that there was this sort of ecosystem center, at least at that time. And I think things have changed, but at that time, which was very uh, US centric. So that was kind of like one thing, and then the second thing was, you know, I'd been kind of chipping away on the side with my sister on this business idea, Canopy, and that was really interesting. And so, um, you know, going to the US, there was the opportunity to kind of like work with her just on sort of like setting up the uh, the framework, if you will, for 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 Canopy to move to the US. So.
0: Hmm. Okay. And you're there for seven years. I mean, that's a long time. Like, it's the opposite of our deal, right? Where you were there for a year and you had a home run. And and then you've gone to Canopy, where you're there for seven years. So, would you say that really gave you a taste of the good and bad of a startup where you didn't just see? Because our deal, if you'd just done that and gone into VC, I would imagine you probably would have had a very rose colored glasses view of startup going, it's all success. and, And why haven't you had an exit? Whereas Canopy probably gave you a broader understanding. Is that a fair assumption?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're just very different journeys, though, right? Like, I think, um, you know, two completely different spectrums of the ways in which to build a business. You know, um, if you think about audio, like, we went out, we raised a VC round, so there was a VC at the time called Netus. Channel 10 also had a VC arm. They invested in the business. So we went the VC route over there. With Canopy, we didn't, Um, and that was partly by choice and partly by necessity, Um, you know, we were building a business which had an element of media rights, which VCs didn't love, which meant like our margins were slightly lower. We're Mm -hmm. operating in the library industry, not super VC sexy. And so partly by necessity, but also partly, um, by choice in the sense that we had like line of sight to sort of flow positivity and profitability. So, um, you know, we didn't do VC there. We did VC here. This, you know, audio was hyper growth, um, in terms of like zero to, you know, very large, very quickly, um and you know we kind of achieved the same sort of like growth in terms of ultimate revenue probably in six years at canopy that we achieved in one year at audio but it was very different like audio was transactional revenue you know it was obviously deals based um three years after the acquisition news corp and channel 10 shut down the business and as i mentioned you know group one is, is is kind of probably a failure by, by all accounts um and so you know, you know i think canopy was a much more sustainable business we built a very profitable business very cash flow generative Um, It took a lot longer, but, you know, we bootstrapped the business for five years. The ownership structures were very different. Um, And so just in terms of what your metric of success is in terms of, you know, the financial exit sale outcome, Canopy was much bigger, probably by a factor of 10 plus, um, 10X plus, um, or in terms of, you know, what it meant to us um, or or, or the more sustainable business um, outcome as well. Aldil no longer exists. Canopy is now part of KKR and Overdrive. So um, I think Canopy was a much more successful story by every measure, even though um, audio was arguably like a much quicker, quicker journey.
0: Yeah. One, one interesting fact, uh, research point that came up from Lauren about Canopy is that apparently you traveled all around the US and you went to most of the colleges that people might not know about. And she said that's, that's helped you pick up weird factoids was her word and experiences that are very American that she loves about you. So do you want to unpack that? Like what was that experience like building a startup, but also learning about a new culture?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're taking me back into it. It's kind of both, you're giving me hives a little bit, but um, thinking about it. But yeah, so I mean, like we, it was a really, go back to the early days of Canopy, it was really difficult, right? Like we we moved to the US, my sister was there, she had a three month old, Uh, we were bootstrapping, we didn't have a lot of cash in the bank. And it was just like the only way to survive is we had to live off customer revenue. That was the only cash that was coming in. Um, and so just like priority number one was, was just like generate <laughs> generate revenue. And so we went out to customers and I just remember like booking one-way tickets from San Francisco to Cleveland, Ohio, getting out, renting a Hertz car and just door knocking every university in the state. Wow. Um, there was even one trip I think I did two weeks straight of just every single night was just picking the, the Motel 6 in town. Um, so just like, you know, Motel 6 is because you, you've got a car park for your car Um, and yeah, just, I'd just do four to five meetings a day, just hammer Pittsburgh, you know, hit up University of Pittsburgh and then Carnegie Mellon and just all the universities in town then get back in the car next day, shoot off. And I'm up in New York and just hitting all of these, um, cities just one by one, trying to jam as many meetings, um, in, in, in a trip as I can. Uh, but it, it, it just worked. And, you know, the way that we built the business is that we would go on those trips and, you know if I tried to do remote selling via demo, like it would be a 10% conversion rate. If I visited a university in person, it was a 60% conversion rate. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, they really appreciated you being there in person, and the and the pitch was much stronger. And so um, you know, we slowly would do these trips, we would bring in more revenue, we'd bring in more revenue, we could hire more staff, and we'd go back out, bring in more revenue, hire more staff. Um, and we just got really smart in the way in which we built the business for profitability and cash flow. And so, for example. Um, we built like a kind of a payment structure with universities where they would actually pay us up front. So they would kind of like pay us for a year or two up front. We would hold the cash on and then kind of draw it down over time. Um, we launched like usage based models so that we didn't have to keep continuously keep pitching them and selling them the product for renewals. It was just like a, Hey, like let's launch this product and then we'll just charge you an invoice at the end of every month uh, for the usage you've had. And so we just got like really creative around how we thought about the business to make it more sustainable from day one. Um, and I think like, you know, in terms of where we're at from the venture ecosystem, you know, we talk about how like the last sort of like decade of venture has been about grow at all costs. And now we're kind of like, actually, <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. all costs. There is a cost to growth. Um, and we've got to really think about that. And that's happening in the public markets as well as venture. Um, but I think, you know, it's been really interesting coming from that DNA of like building a business with cash flow positivity. Sort of like from day one, just being in venture and sort of like thinking through how, how you structure a business to be sustainable early on.
0: Would you say this was your almost deep dive into go-to-market and sales strategy? Like a lot of people in the Australian ecosystem know you for your pieces of work on that. And I'm sure founders knock on your door for that advice. Would you say Canopy gave you that really open-eyed view into what go-to-market strategy success looks like, but also what to avoid?
1: Yeah. I mean, like, I think, like, I just have been in the weeds a lot. And so if you think about a founder or a VP of sales who's sitting there and thinking through the questions they've got before them, like how am I going to kind of like increase acquisition? How am I going to increase conversion demos? How am I going to kind of hire an SDR team? How am I going to think through incentive structures for my AEs? You know, these are questions that I've spent a lot of time thinking about as well. And so I think like um, just with the experience I've had both at Audiol and Canopy um, and, you know, th- building these teams of, of 30 to 40 people, on sales, um, and then being in the kind of like sales conversations myself for um, many years as well, I, I think I can talk, uh, have, have these conversations which go quite detailed, um, but also have that empathy to understand some of the challenges um, they're going through. That said, like one of the things I'd say about go to market is that it's just so different. Like every company there's mm. you know, if you rewind 10 to 20 years, it was just like build a product you take it to market and there wasn't a lot of in- innovation on go-to-market. They talk about ABCs, right? Always be closing. It was just like the innovation was really in product. That's why we only ever talk about product market fit, right? And I'd say like, if you think about just the innovation that's happened around go-to-market in the last 10 years plus, like with Slack and these companies like inventing freemium as a bo- as a business model or like Salesforce inventing like SaaS as like a business model and um, you know, now we've got like embedded fintech with MindBody and Brightwheel and Toast. And, um, you know, we've even got tokens and, you know, community as a, a strategy in terms of how you think about your go-to-market. Open source as a strategy for developer-based um, companies. So like just, you know, the the innovation which has happened in the last 10 years around go-to-market is so big that right now I'm just very hesitant to kind of say I know the answers because I mm-hmm. have kind of built up two different go-to-markets, but I'm just very conscious but there's lots and lots of different um, go-to-markets out there. Um, the only other thing I'd say on that as well is like, I do have a little bit of a chip on my sh- shoulder as well because, you know, I did, you know, I haven't had like a go-to-market training. Like I feel like both outill and um, <laughs> Canopy, you know, we just kind of like built from day one. And it was just like we built a go-to-market motion just based on learnings and listening to customers and just building as we went. I haven't, for example, been at Google or Slack or Salesforce and just kind of had that like intensity of like a blue chips sales team um, kind of go-to-market uh, training and so that's always been something I've always thought about and so you know I have done a lot of um, spent a lot of my time just sort of like really trying to kind of meet with people in those organizations to learn what how they do things differently but I, and I think that at the end of the day um, you know there's this element of both like I think like taking what you learn from these organizations which have executed on successful strategies um, but then really actually trying to build it bottoms up from the way in which you listen look at customers you know Bezos always talks about, um, you know, you want to be like competitor aware and customer obsessed. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a really good framework for thinking through your your go-to-market because I I noticed that a lot of founders will immediately kind of jump to like, oh, I'm building like a developer, you know, product. So I'm just going to use the go-to-market that Auth0 had, or I'm going to use the go-to-market that Stripe had, or, you know, I'm building this kind of product in the consumer space, so I'm just going to do what Eucalyptus did. Um, and, you know, again, like, it's just really dangerous to kind of just make that assumptions, And you really got to kind of like work customer back. Like, it's good to be aware of those models and learn from them, but work customer back and just really understand what's the right natural go-to-market journey from the customers and the product you're trying to sell to them.
0: Mm. You touch on two interesting points there about your own learning journey, but also how you show credibility almost is, is what you're trying to imply. And it's interesting because I speak to a lot of founders similar to you. And often founders don't want a VC that knows it all. Like often, like I think the VCs that have worked at Google or Stripe or, or what have you in these companies, they sort of almost come across as like a bit instructive where they're telling founders that, hey, I did it this way, so you should do it this way too. Whereas I feel like because you've got that own experience where you've sort of DIYed it, it probably becomes more relatable to founders, I would I would hope. So it's interesting you say that. That's an insecurity. I would actually say... I would hope that founders think it's a strength because you can actually learn with them rather than saying, Hey, I did this for 10 years, I've built this company, so I know all the answers.
1: Yeah. I think I think that's I think that's right. And 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 it probably also <clears throat> matters a little bit in terms of the stage of the business. I think, you know, my journeys of like zero to 40 mil run rate, sort of with, you know, the experiences I've had. Um, you know, I you know, I think I've I've kind of like got a lot of experience just around how you kind of like on the job, like grit, like learn mm. and just you know develop and adapt to kind of get to that stage, and then maybe at that later stage, as you start kind of like maturing your go-to-market motions and building much more sort of like stable, you know architectures around you know sales pods and SDR interactions with AEs, and um, you know that might be like a much more mature kind of uh, training from like a Google or Salesforce that sort of starts to come into play there.
0: Have you? Have you? Done, like I guess back to your own learning journey. Like you said, you moved on from Canopy in 2018 and you've been in VC since then. What is your learning journey like today? Like, do you follow certain newsletters or podcasts, or you just learn from founders when they're going through it? Like, how do you keep up to date with these changes in business models?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I'd say, look, most of my learning is just coming from founders and just like, and, and then I also sort of like look at you know a lot of the kind of companies which are just really executing really well on go to market you know there's a lot of um you know uh the, the sacra blog and you know a lot of these other kind of blogs where they're coming out just doing profiles like i like i love acquired um mm-hmm. you know, given they go to these really detailed kind of depths of like analyzing a customer a, a company's whole journey and then so i think i love you know picking these companies that are just like really executed and won on go to market specifically and just, you know, doing a really deep dive and understanding, like, what, is, what are the innovations or learnings that they got, um, you know, out of that? I, I, just, I just think there's so many, like, fascinating examples. Like, you know, I, I always talk about some of these ones, like, you know, like Slack versus HipChat was a fascinating mm-hmm. one. You know, Atlassian, you know, bought HipChat and, and for every, you know, every, you know, you, you like, I, can't, I still can't understand how they didn't win, right? Like, against in that Slack kind of competition because they had a three-year head start on Slack Slack was founded in 2013, HipChat in, in 2010. It was part of Atlassian. So they had this kind of like opportunity for like cross-sell to their existing customer base. Um, and, you know, just like in terms of like the resources and backing of an Atlassian, but, you know, Slack one And Slack one just, you know, the products were pretty much the same, right? Um, but, but Slack one because, you know, they just executed the more natural um, go-to-market journey for their customers with the freemium model versus the free trial model for, um, you know, HipChat. And then, you know, if you look at like Slack versus Teams, like Slack then got like many years later blown out of the water by Teams and Teams is a worse product than Slack, like Mm. let's be honest. Mm. It's literally distribution and go-to-market, which is why Microsoft is winning. It it kind of helps to have that distribution um, advantage. And so, you know, I think that's a really good example of just like the role of go-to-market. Like, you know, sometimes you can be the better product and not win and it's because you might not get the right go-to-market strategy up front.
0: Yeah. And I'd encourage the listeners to check out your articles. I think if they just search up top, Tom Humphrey, GTM, Black Bear, there's a three-part, three-part, a four-part series that he wrote last year.
1: Yeah, four-part, yeah. They can
0: check out. Yeah, and I think you've done a bunch of webinars as well on YouTube that people can check out as well where you've actually spoken about the hack, Slack versus um, HipChat example in a bit of detail. So I encourage people to do that. Um, the, the other part that, that's interesting on, on what you touch on there is like Australia versus the US is, and it's something I think a lot about is, Australian operators and I'm curious for your views is so I was doing a bit of research maybe a month ago where I was considering featuring more operators on the podcast mm. and I, the feedback was really interesting. Like the level of respect that we give American operators, which back to your point about insecurity where, cause there's more American success stories, the list I got back of names was way more American based operators than Australian. Like What do you think like will take for Australia? Like I know we've got Canva and Atlassian, you mentioned Eucalyptus and you, you, you work with a lot of founders like Forage and others who've had success, but do you think it's a cultural thing in Australia where we just don't give ourselves enough credit and we still rely on like even the sources you mentioned acquired in some of these newsletters, they're all American sources. Like we're yet to see like Australian first sources where VCs, founders, operators, mention Australian sources and it's something that irks me a lot having lived in Australia I'm like how can we get on the world stage where someone asks you a question in 5 years and you go yeah listen to this Australian podcast or listen to this Australian operator who's built it do you think that's yeah. a that, do you think that's a reflection of our ecosystem like we still don't have the success stories where they command the respect to go they they know what they're doing that's not
1: really a really good question um look i think I think, look, I think we've come a long way in 10 years. Like I still, you know, reflect on leaving Australia in 2011. There was nothing here. There was no Canva, no Atlassian. There was no VC. It was like sub $100 million invested in Australian startups every year. Um, There was just like nothing here. And if I just reflect on everything that happened in the decade until I returned back in 2011, like it's just, you know, Canva, Atlassian, zero in New Zealand, Afterpay, like, you know, just these incredible success stories, incredible kind of, ecosystem, $10 billion invested into startups, um, you know, just like a flourishing VC system. There's so much kind of going on here. You know, there's like almost a million people in the tech community in Australia um, today. There's more software developers in Australia than hairdressers um, Mm. and baristas. And so, you know, like it's a really exciting decade that we've just come out for. And like, if you ask me the question, well, what's the next decade going to be? I think think that trend line is not going to stop. So I think we're heading in the right direction. I think it's just going to get better. And if I think about you know just the talent in the ecosystem i'd say look we're really strong in some areas i think that like you know when i think about engineers i think like australia's got a really strong engineering community but we're maybe weaker in sort of like ai ml talent like you know i think Mm -hmm. you know i don't see a ton of ai infrastructure companies popping up in australia right now vis-a-vis like in the us like we've got no llms here we've got no you know, very limited kind of like core ML ops kind of infrastructure kind of popping up. Um, And, you know, a lot of your companies will tell you like the difficulty of kind of finding ML talent. Um, Or if I think about like product managers as well, like I think, you know, especially as you get like more senior, like senior product managers, like, you know, it starts to get pretty thin. Um, So I think there's areas where we might be uh, sort of thin on, but like other areas where we're strong on. And I just think it's just gonna take a little bit more time. Um, I think the things that are working, in our favour is one is just, um, you know, the local ecosystem of, of companies. You know, we, we've we got these Canva's, the Atlassian's, these Safety Cultures and Cultures amp and those companies are just getting more sophisticated and they're kind of like got cross-country teams as well so that you've got local teams that are working with, um, you know, in, you know teams in the US as well. Like Atlassian's got huge teams over in the US and they work with the Australian teams. And so there is that cross-pollination of, of um, talent. Um, and then I think also like, you know, there is this sort of diaspora happening as well where you have these, Australians who go overseas and come back. And mm. I think that that's, that's an awesome phenomenon that's just going to keep um, increasing. Um, mm. So I'm really like positive about where we're heading and I think that'll, that'll improve. But I, I do like you touch on this word of cultural. I, I think there is like a cultural thing in Australia. And I I think about this a lot and I, I don't know how to kind of really word it properly, but I'll do my best. But it's just like, there is a really interesting cultural thing in it, in, in Australia versus the US. Mm. And I see it reflected in founders and just like, you know, this element of ambition and confidence that they have, um, I think they tend to be a little bit more sort of like conservative and kind of hold back. And it's often like just pushing them to kind of like think about going bigger, harder earlier. I see it also just in the media, like, you know, just in the media, and mm. particularly in Australia. Like, I feel like there's, you know, a lot of relishing and kind of time spent on like the failures, like mm. obviously like milk run failure. Like it just like was just hammer, hammer, hammer of like articles, like thinking about it um and then like every time that there's a valuation uplift for a company it's just like you know these articles coming out questioning like whether that should be valid at every point in uh, you know a startup's journey it's just like it's almost like our media here is orientated towards skepticism whereas Mm -hmm. when i'm in the us and i think about tech crunch it's just like orientated towards optimism uh, at least Mm. for the tech ecosystem and i think that that is just a reflection of maybe like the cultural sort of ecosystem there where it's just like, you know, America was just built on this idea of like entrepreneurialism and individualism and like let's celebrate difference and people giving it a go. Um And we don't necessarily have that same cultural element here. And I think that that is something that, you know, is slowly starting to chip away at, but I think that it's just something I've noticed here that is probably worth reflecting on.
0: <laughs> completely agree. And I think the root cause there is what I alluded to earlier is there's no original sources of media that focus only on startups and tech and VC like there are a few players i won't name them but they copy what the afr Mm. or the Australian, does and they release it two days later with their spin on it so i think Mm. that's a challenge where and i don't think that's the role of podcasters and newsletters because we are not trying to be large-scale media media players we're trying to be personalized like this one-on-one so i think that's something an opportunity which which hopefully money goes towards and to your point earlier like media-based startups are hard to build because the business model is just so difficult to scale that Mm. so uh, I don't know how TechCrunch and Axios and these guys are funded. I think they're privately funded um, where they're not expecting venture returns. So maybe there's something in that um, that time will tell. Um, the next next transition you made in your career was um, capital allocation and VC and, and, and private equity to an extent. Before I get to that, I want to ask something that came up a lot in my research is that a lot of people are curious is you've had these experiences that is a combination of prestige, prestige with law and consulting, and then early stage startups. When you look back on that decade or fifteen year period, are there any experiences that you wish you could delete, or you want to disassociate disassociate yourself from, or are there any that you're very grateful for, or do you think the whole package has made you who you are?
1: Um, any, I'm really grateful for any I would delete. I look so. I think. Um, I think the experiences that I'm most grateful for would be like just at a high level, like the Fortescue kind of mining experience, just like I just was out there. It was just like this raw experience on operations. So that was just like, I'm just so grateful I did that. Even though it had nothing to do with tech, it was just like this awakening um, in me. And then the audio experience was just like this awakening for tech. And I was just like, wow. And then like the canopy experience was just this awakening for like, world of opportunity in the united states and just being in san francisco for five years just right in the hub of you know i remember like just just pinching myself i'd just be like in my apartment in the middle of soma near the caltrain station and i could i could throw a rock from my balcony and hit airbnb and uber as those companies were just like growing um and my wife would come home from work and she was at gusto and you know that's like an 11 billion dollar payroll company and it was just like really exciting uh experience to be part of that so that's what i'm probably most grateful for um in terms of what i'm regretful i don't think i've got i don't think i've got any like major regrets um you know there's probably maybe some experiences that could have probably tightened up there was a couple of projects in consulting (laughs) that i have nightmares over you Um, could have worked
0: at facebook as you said (laughs) facebook and slack in the early days so that's probably yeah Hindsight. Yeah.
1: And, you know, like I could probably take some experiences and wisdom that I have now back and do things better. Um, that's I, most I, of us,
0: right? <laughs> that's most of us. That's, <laughs> yeah. I don't I think there's, there's, there's anyone.
1: There's dark moments, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's really easy to kind of look back and, glo- you know, paint a glossy picture of like the canopy journey. But at the time, it was brutal. Like, it was brutal. Like, we had so many problems and like we were scraping by and, you know, checking the cash, you know, bank accounts every like week, just to kind of make sure we could run payroll. Um, I remember like at one point my wife got really frustrated with me because um, I was doing so many sales pitches that I would start giving them in my sleep. And so she would wake me up and say, you're doing it again. And like, I'm just sitting there in my sleep, just like literally sleep talking a sales pitch to a customer. It's like, you know, you just like 24 seven and it just consumes your life. And so you know, I don't regret that, but you know, it's just it, it. I just reflect on it. It's not like an easy journey, and you got to obviously just embrace that. So,
0: I'm glad you share that. I think people would be happy to hear that because you ha- people seem to think you're perfect the perception from what I was told is that you're athletic, you're good looking, you're smart, you've got the wife, the kids, the house, the job. So I'm glad you've got a few things you're not good
1: at. I I can't prove you wrong. But um, no, like, honestly, you know, and, you know, we talked a little bit about happiness before, I reflect a lot on that. And one of the things I've learned about happiness, just through all that research, and I guess, just like personal life experiences is just, it's very relative, like this concept of happiness. And, you know, you your perception of you and your self worth and um, how you are going in life is, and uh, whether you know this is a personal comment or like something about a, being a founder and doing a startup, it's very dependent on how you benchmark yourself in the context of what's going on. And the example I give you is like when we were doing Canopy, like it was very easy to get sort of like almost depressed and just, you know, you know, in the day to day, and you're in the trenches, and you're like, oh, what are we doing? Like, are we ever going to exit this company or? what do we, you know, what's the end game here? And, you know, dealing with these problems, it's constantly putting out fires. And then, you know, I remember I subscribed to TechCrunch, you mentioned TechCrunch, and you just get this email in your inbox every day and talking about, like, you know, media and optimism. Like, I'd get this, you know, inbox and it would be like, you know, these guys just raised all this money and these guys just sold to Google. And it was just like, there's a lot of optimism comes in. And that, you know, as a point of relativity, makes you start to go, you know, well, we're here, we're here, we're not doing so well, we're not raising from, we're not selling to Google. Mm-hmm. Um and then I remember like talking to my sister about it. My sister was like, it's just it's just perception. You gotta change your point of reference. And I remember she found me this newsletter, and I can't I've actually been trying to find it again. I can't remember where it is, but it was like something about like tech failures. And mm. I'd get this weekly newsletter of just like things which went wrong. And it was just like, Oh wow, you know, this founder sued for fraud, and fab.com raised a hundred million dollars and just went under. And it's just like, ah, oh, you know, we're not doing so <laughs> bad <that. laughs> compared to those guys. And so yeah, and it's the same in your personal yeah. life, you know, when you kind of like look at social media and everyone's smiling in Hawaii, like you start to kind yeah. of, think of, maybe your life not going so well. And so, you know, I think there's that element of just, you know, you know, we all have these feelings and you just got to kind of make sure you reflect on what your points of relativity are.
0: Yeah, I think my takeaway there is we're all the same as humans. We've got the same fears and insecurities and sleep talking. I sleep talk as well. So I'm glad you do it too. Oh, so, cool. <laughs> so you might be investing bigger sums of money than, and than someone else, but As a human, we're still the same, so I completely agree and appreciate you sharing that. I want to get to present day and touch on a few topics that are sort of outside the career decision making. Is one we I mentioned earlier is managing people. This is one I think about a lot because I've had a lot of experience. I've had some really bad managers, some good managers, and I'm a big fan of coaching. I spend a lot of time with students now, and at Ecotone, I've got an associate that works with me. and And Nick mentioned that he Nick Crocker mentioned that he's learned a lot from you about managing. He said you talk about deposits in the trust bank as a metaphor. So can you can you talk about that? And can you talk about, yeah, how have you like what is your view on managing people or getting the best out of talent?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got a, a bit of a secret, which is probably not a secret for any of your podcast listeners, but I've got the benefit of my wife, who's a management expert, to the point mm. where she's built a startup orientated around manager training. Um, and so you know, I have the, the benefit of, of kind of picking at all her wisdom and kind of stealing her ideas. But um, just that kind of deposit, uh, it's called the Care Bank. And this is 100% me stealing my wife's idea. But the idea of the Care Bank is it's almost like when you think about management and, you know, the relationship between a manager and a managee, uh it's a good kind of analogy of just like, you know, a bank account. And, you know, there's two things you want to reflect on. One is you want to make sure when you're managing someone to give really honest and transparent, constructive feedback. That's like number one. Um, And number two, you want to make sure that you're also kind of contextualizing that feedback in a way that it's not just hammering them down. Um, And so this idea of like the care bank is a good idea in that the sense that you almost want to like, if you're going to cash out of the bank account by take money out with some constructive feedback, you've got to make sure you built up that bank account with deposits So that you've got something to cash out, and so this idea is like, you know, make sure that you're investing in a relationship in the way of giving positive feedback where it's due and fair, and just making sure you're you're doing that. So you build up that bank account, so that when you give you know constructive feedback um, to someone, you've got a context or a relationship where you can do that without kind of like trying to cash out of a bank account that just doesn't have any um, balance in it. Um, the The other kind of thing which can happen um, is this concept of the shit sandwich which is just like mm-hmm. you know oftentimes when you're giving feedback to someone if you haven't kind of built up the bank account you might feel guilty about just giving negative feedback and so um you know the idea that you might cotton wool it amongst a whole bunch of positive feedback you know vidit uh, you're doing a great job on this and this and this but hey you know and it's just like mm-hmm. the shit sandwich is like the worst thing you want you want to like give feedback up front hey vidit you got to work on this this is something you didn't do wrong and so it's building that relationship of trust and care over time so that you can really cash out effectively when you need to.
0: I'd be curious if you go tactical, just one level deeper on that. Let's assume I joined your team today and I'm an associate reporting into you. How do you build trust with me? And I think the pretext here is in my experience of our ecosystem, we're smart driven people, but a lot of the reasons for that is because we're deeply insecure. Like I am deeply insecure. I've got a lot of chip on my shoulder. I was an average kid growing up. So if someone, say something to me, I think back to that child that the teacher said to me, you're dumb with it. And that insecurity comes out and I've learned how to put that animal back in the cage. How do you deal with that? Particularly like with associates and things, they're very ambitious, very smart, but like we know, ventures are a long feedback cycle journey. You don't know for years if you're good. Like even, I'm sure you have certain days where you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm good at this or not. Like when do you actually know? So is there is there a mechanism you've learned around building trust with a, junior team member in the first three, six months?
1: Uh, Yeah, look, I mean, I I don't think I'm perfect. Uh, I don't think I'm a perfect manager by any means. I know that I can do so much better. And like every day I reflect on that and try to figure out ways in which I can improve. But I'd say, look, yeah. And I'd also say managing someone in venture is very different than Mm. managing someone, you know, who's a customer support or account executive um, or head of marketing. It's just a really different, you know, relationship and role. Um, and yeah, look, I'd, I'd say, look, you know, some of the things I've learned is just like frequency of feedback is really important. Um, I think especially in the context of our team where like oftentimes it's not like a point to point relationship between the manager and the manager. So like in most yeah. companies, you're the VP of sales, you manage the directors of sales and it's like they, you know, you are interacting with each other every single day. Um, you know, with, you know, associates in the venture team, like often they're working on projects with completely different set of people than you. And so if you're not actually kind of like building in the feedback loops properly, you don't really know if things are kind of going well or off track or need help. So I think like one major lesson is just like frequency of feedback and just making sure you're capturing that feedback really quickly. Um, I'd say, look, you know, the other kind of big lesson I've got is just like, it's as much about managing up as managing down. Right. Mm. And, you know, I think, you know, we often talk about in these management relationships, just expectations on the managee. And it's just like, hey, like, here's what I expect of you to do this, 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 and this to get, kind of nail the role. But I think it's equally important to kind of make sure he's talking up and like, hey, well, here's what I expect from you. And, you know, hey, if I'm going to work for you, I want to make sure that things are scoped in properly. I want to make sure you're giving me feedback direct and when I need it. And, you know, just it's about like making sure you're kind of um, doing both of those uh, two things.
0: Mm, absolutely. The, the other part that came up, which again, Lauren was kind enough to share, is one of the things that you're thinking a lot about is the balance between being an analytical person, giving you experience and leaning into your gut and into intuition. I'd love to get your thoughts, because she said, that's interesting for her to watch, how that's playing into your investing journey, about when do you trust your gut and when do you actually analyze a data room and go deep on a business model. How is that how does that play out? Because that's something I think about as I'm a bit more junior to you in my investing journey. How has that evolved for you? And is that something that is a constant work in progress, that balance between gut and data?
1: Yeah. Oh, it's a really good question. Um, and I think like the things I would talk about there is number one, like I realize it it really depends on where you're investing in mm. startup lifecycle. Like later stage investors, you've got a much more analytical uh, muscle than early stage you know at early stage you know, there's this quote i always love which is like um you know tigers and cats always mm. look like kittens at the mm. at mm. the start of their life and so you know if you're kind of investing at that pre-seed seed stage and you're looking at a lot of kittens you've got to build the muscle to kind of identify the tiger from the cats um, and you know you there's an element of analytical to that in the sense of you want to really understand, you know, different markets and, you know, especially we've talked about this, but like go to market strategies and have a really strong perspective on that. But also you've got to reflect on the fact that the earlier you go, um, just the uncertainty around the journey forward is just creeping in. And so you've just got to like really unlock and unleash a lot of that um, sort of like comfort around knowing exactly all the answers. Um, and I think a lot of it, you know, the importance you wait on the founder and them as a Person is 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 much greater too because I think you know the number of times we've invested in companies at the seed stage and by the time they kind of like get to the A or B they just look completely different to mm-hmm. what they did at the seed stage to the point where you would never have been able to recognize it at the seed stage um, you know that's something I re- reflect on a lot as well um, so to kind of answer your question like yeah look I, I definitely think it's um, really interesting I look I think with my background I've had to like unlearn a few things along the journey like you kind of talked to on this before about you know outill and like that being like a zero to hero journey in one year that's not a normal startup journey you know one year you know start to finish is not normal and i had to unlearn that um you know the other kind of thing i had to unlearn from canopy a little bit is just i had this intense level of conservatism around yeah. cash from canopy we didn't raise we bootstrapped um and so coming into VC you know, off the get-go back in 2018, I remember just, you know, looking at these startups and they'd come forward and they say, hey, I want to raise $5 million. I'm going to burn a whole bunch of cash to kind of get to here. And I'm like, whoa, 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 you know, like, why <laughs> 5 million? Why don't you go and do it? Where, where, what's your burn yeah. ratio going on here, buddy? Like, you know, Um, and, you know, like the reality is like, you know, a lot of these markets, you know, it, it is kind of like a race for growth. Um, And a lot of these companies which are like, you know, Hundred billion dollars like Alassian, like you know, they're still unprofitable, you know, in many ways. I mean, like, you know, economics are great, but you know, cash, you know, in terms of like their total profitability, and so you know, you do have to invest to kind of grow, and you know, sometimes that's the right decision. And you know, I think that that's something I've just had to really like unpack as well.
0: Kind of coming into this, so interesting. And that's that's the beauty of VC, I love is that it's constantly evolving. And like you said earlier, with AI and things, it's again evolving, but the business models are different. And the like James Alcorn in the last episode spoke about their high burn businesses often and they need a lot of capital, a lot of compute and they're different to a, a Netflix style business model, perhaps. So super interesting. Last one I want to touch on before we've got a rapid fire sprint to close us out is you put me in touch with some of your founders and Tom at Forage is nice enough to help me out. And and one question that came up from him and, and a lot of your colleagues as well is what keeps you in VC? Cause they all said you're a natural operator. You've got this ability to just get in the weeds, get shit done, And they're like, what's stopping you from going back to the other side?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, look, it's, you know, I, yeah, I think there's, the grass is always greener and there's, you know, there's, there are two very different roles. I think my logic of coming out of operations back in 2018 and jumping into VC with the fund in the U.S. called Access, um, you know, I kind of came out of this going, okay, Audio was really fun. Canopy was really fun why would I work on one business when I could work on many at once? Or, you know, I just, I just love this journey. Like I would love to go through a hundred of those experiences at once rather than just one. And, you know, Canopy was an amazing experience. By the end of it, seven years, I was pretty exhausted and kind of coming out of it. And, you know, to, as I mentioned before, I was giving sales pitches in my sleep mm-hmm. and, you know, there's this element of like repetitiveness. Like I really understand this business model. I really understand this customer and the, the pain point and, you know, just like a thirst for something new. Um, When I think about VC and, you know, overlay my past experience, you know, I've got this experience of like management consulting and startups and I kind of feel like VC is kind of like that. It's almost like management consulting for startups um, in that you're looking Mm -hmm. at lots of different industries, working on projects almost in terms of startups and um, but then also also this kind of like tech startup growth lens. Um, So, yeah, like I think that, you know, being a VC is partly strategy, it's partly operations um, and the ability to kind of like bring both of those lenses. Um, you know, like, you know, sometimes, you know, people ask me is just like, do you miss being the operator? I think like the biggest thing I miss is just like being a, an expert. You know, I think mm-hmm. I know, I know a little about a lot now, whereas yeah. when I was at Canopy, I knew a lot about a little. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably couldn't talk about like quantum or I probably still can't, but, you know, <laughs> I probably couldn't talk about AI or talk about like different verticals, um, like, you know, DevOps or, or otherwise. But I hell of a lot, like knew a lot about the industry vertical of going for ed tech. And, mm. you know, I could get up on a stage unprepared at a conference and just talk at your for an hour about the future of education and so mm. and video streaming. And,
0: um, you know, I miss
1: that, like just being like a real expert at something. So, mm. yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Cool. We've got a few minutes left, so I'd love to close the quick rapid fire final sprint. Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life?
1: uh venture investment
0: (laughs) in life in life outside of work i mean that's my wife like have you done have you done a course course or you've (laughs) gone on a holiday i mean it could be i mean yeah that's investment investing in your partner it's a
1: great investment yeah like i haven't calculated the roi or run a dcf on lauren but i'm sure if i did it would be pretty high (laughs) well i guess the three kids the three kids will be
0: roi right that'll be the test over time
1: i invested in one person i ended up with four so (laughs) math, like four x multiple
0: like that's (laughs) is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months um a lot of my learning
1: kind of is connected to my kids so i want hatch to learn the alphabet and Taz to learn to potty but um a lot of my personal learning right now is around yeah look i'm really trying to understand like the future of ai um and you know i think we all kind of like are reflecting on what's going on right now and the thesis but i'm really trying to unpack like where we're going to be in five to ten years i think ai is such an interesting space you know i feel like being in vc for as long as i have you know i've noticed how things like typically move in years and sometimes move in months and this is the first time i've seen something move in weeks where it's just like every single week there's a groundbreaking fundamental development in this in the technical stack that you've got to wrap your head around and I've never seen anything mm-hmm. move that quickly before. Um, so yeah, that's something where I'm really kind of focused right now.
0: Mm. Is there one person, a quote that inspires you today? Oh,
1: you, well, I've talked about tigers and kittens. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I like um, there was a quote from, Uh, Peter Drucker, I think it was, which I always like. And it was like, you know, he said, like, the desk is a really dangerous place to view the world Mm. from. Mm.
0: Um,
1: And I like that one just in general. And I think, like, just, you know, that perspective of being a VC, you know, and having the operating background, I do really like sort of, like, getting out of the desk and getting into the weeds of the business. Um, And even, like, when diligencing a company, uh, you know, I think, like, my most memorable experience of diligencing a company I was talking to this company in Denver and they were um, selling like a deskless workforce communication platform, that like, kind of like Slack for deskless workers. And I immediately just got out of my desk, walked and visited four Walmarts in the area and would just walked in and said, hey, can I talk to your manager? And just sort of like walked them through the product and got the perspective on that. And, you know, like I just, I just love that kind of angle of thinking through um, the role and just trying to get off, out of the desk and into the real world.
0: And last one, what's one thing that you have to do each week outside of work to get the best out of yourself mentally and physically?
1: Uh, spend time with the kids. Um, I yeah, hear
0: surfing. Been... <laughs> surfing, I hear you're a pretty yeah, decent surfer.
1: I, like surfing. <laughs> I probably don't go as much as I would try to pretend I do. But, um, yeah, look, I, I do go surfing. That's my, my true love. Um, but, yeah, look, I think realistically each week I just, I'm really focused on just trying to uh, put down the tech when I'm spending time with the kids, like try to like put down phones and just really engage with kids. Um, you know, with our life, Lauren doing a startup and me doing this and us having three kids under the age of five. Um, it's, you know, we've got this divide and conquer strategy where she does Mondays, I do mm. it, she does Wednesdays. And so when I'm on, I just want to make sure I'm really, really on for the kids. Um, and it's the same with Lauren. And that's kind of how we survive. Yeah, lean, that's great. Lean startup, lean family methodology. Yeah. <laughs> <and right there. laughs>
0: I mean, it's, it's it's actually incredible like because three boys under five, right? Yep. Three boys as well, like they'd be super active and eating and all that, like that would be intense.
1: Yeah, we call it the HJRC, the Humphrey Juniors
0: Rugby Club. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that is great. Well, that's the finish line, Tom. Tom Humphrey, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Tom Humphrey. We covered a fair bit, didn't we? And I love Tom's candid and relatable answers to every question. Especially how his older sister nurtured and influenced him growing up and then their journey together, building Canopy for almost a decade to a successful exit. And also the notion of gross national happiness, deposits in the care bank as a way of looking at team management, sales, go-to-market and lots more. So I hope you enjoyed this episode 138. As always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation, all my details in the show notes and I will talk to you soon.